0: Welcome to the Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg. I'm Harold Nichol. This week, Ren is adding a new segment to the top of the podcast. As the program has grown and become more popular, she wanted to add more content, and this is one of the ways she wanted to do that. In addition, there is a news about Agile, Scrum, and Safe section that was added to the webpage at www.wrenmelberg.com and you can scan or read more in-depth about these items and some features that are also posted there. So, we hope you enjoy it. Do you want to hack the Pentagon? Well, if you want to hack into secure government information, now is your chance. April the 18th marks the day that the U.S. Department of Defense's pilot program hack the Pentagon starts for the first time the government is offering hackers money to find vulnerabilities within the Department of Defense website of course it's not a free-for-all to legally break into the Pentagon's data files you have to register for the program through hacker one and meet the eligibility requirements so if you live in a country that's under US trade sanctions or If you're on the list that bans you from doing business with Americans, your hacking services are not welcome, but eligible hackers have until May the 12th to try to break into the Pentagon's defenses, and those who find a bug or vulnerability will get paid from the program's $150,000 funding pool. Do you want to know about Agile Marketing? There are a couple of really good feature articles about that topic, and we have links posted on the new News About Agile section of the website that I mentioned a moment ago. This one was published in CIO Magazine and introduces the concept that this is an adaptation, this of course being Agile Marketing, of the software development methodology, and they answer seven different questions about Agile marketing. So you can and should probably share this with your marketing colleagues. Now, mid-April also is the time that a U.S. government delegation led by Anthony Fox, who's the Secretary of Transportation, and a number of Danish city mayors will discuss urban transportation in smart cities. Now, all of these People are going to gather in Copenhagen to discuss smart cities. The Smart City Workshop was organized by the American Chamber of Commerce in Denmark, and we have more information about that on Ren's website, which of course is www.renmelberg.com. Now, coming up in the main part of the podcast, Ren is going to talk to us about geographically diverse work teams and how they can or won't work for you and your enterprise. Thank you for listening to the Guardian podcast with Ren Melberg. Here comes the interview with Ren. What's well, it's the part of the podcast where we get to talk in depth with The Guardian herself, Ren Melberg. This week we're going to be talking about geographically diverse teams. In the age of the internet and instant communications, it's no longer necessary for team members to work in the same office floor or even in the same building. In fact, it's not really necessary to even be in the same country. This means freedom for many workers who need or choose to live in a certain locale, but whose location differs from that of the office. But how can a team like this be managed and coordinated without a sacrifice of resources somewhere? Now, to help us navigate the geographic diversity of this brave new world is, like I said, the Guardian herself, ren Melberg. And Ren, before we get too deeply into this, have you ever been a member of a geographically diverse team?
1: Um, yeah, of course, um, pretty much my entire career to some mm-hmm. extent or another. As we've talked about before, my career really started at American Express.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And at, at the time, American Express was every country in the world except for Cuba. Mm-hmm. And often our teams were dispersed across the United States or across the world. Mm-hmm.
0: What was the biggest headache for the team that you were on that resulted from being so widely dispersed? Did it impact assets in any way?
1: Well, I think the biggest headache really was communication. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know as human beings were designed um, for face-to-face communication. Mm-hmm that's where we get most of our information is actually the non-verbals from face-to-face communication. Right. Um, and that gets lost when you're in a geographically dispersed uh, team. And its we all know, we've all been there, where we read an email or an instant message differently than the author intended mm-hmm. because we can't hear tone. Right. We can't see body language. Uh, so that's what I mean by the nonverbals. We lose so much of the the real impact and the real message of human communications when we're dispersed. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make it impossible, but it makes it a lot more difficult.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I know in my own uh, communications online, um, sometimes I'll try to say something funny typing it. And funny doesn't always translate in the typed word. So when you're talking about nonverbal cues, I, I know exactly, exactly what you mean. So let's talk then about team cohesiveness. How can teamwork that's so important in the agile world flourish when I may have never met any of my coworkers?
1: And this is why, what we've just been talking about is why, in Agile we have such a heavy emphasis on teams being Uh co-located. Is Because it is so much easier. You're going to get um, a better result, so better business value out of your Agile team with a lot less expense. Uh So when we have geographically dispersed teams, Often companies do it because they're trying to incrementally lower their per hour cost of their people. Uh What they don't always take into account is the exponential increase in the cost of being productive. Okay. So, implementing things like web conferencing, having to have a tool to manage the work instead of just having post-it notes on a wall. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, those licensing fees for agile management tools can get kind of steep.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, The extra networking cost of supporting web conferencing is not inexpensive. and should not be taken lightly, especially if you are in a, a company where you have to protect your intellectual property. Then the additional security that you need to have on those networks Mm-hmm. So you can't use just, you know, any old, you know, shareware. Right. Right? You're, yeah. you're gonna have something that has some security, which means you're gonna have to pay licensing, blah, blah, blah. Right, yeah. Then there's also often extra overhead in terms of just people. In geographically dispersed teams, we often see that organizations need to have two sets of architects, two sets of technical leads, two sets of QA leads, etc., or even more, depending on how many locations they have. Wow! All of that increase the costs of geographically dispersed teams, and all of this. And so, some people are going, "Wait a minute, Rin! That's the same stuff that Peter Drucker taught us in the 50s and 60s about outsourcing." And you're absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. The same economic rules apply mm-hmm. to outsourcing as Agile teams that are not co-located. Um, and so you're going to have, you may have like that we call Penny, actually Drucker called it Pennywise, Paul and Foolish. She's uh-huh. from Franklin, right? Right. <laughs> because it's true. Being Pennywise about this hourly cost of resources, Pound foolish about all the extra overhead and governance and everything that needs to be in place to have successfully geographically dispersed teams okay now taking that in account <laughs> that's one side of it right mm-hmm. the other side is that if we don't support some geographic diversity a company can stay competitive mm-hmm. we have to be able to support people working from home right. That's just a modern necessity. And one of our agile principles is that we don't mandate for knowledge workers when and where they do their work. If somebody is more productive at 2 a.m., we let them work at 2 Uh a.m. We're not going to shut that down. Because what they're going to deliver for us is too valuable.
0: Right, right. So let's get even more granular with our agile team and its geographic diversity. And and I'm not trying to be a wise guy when I ask this, how do you have a stand up meeting if no one is physically there?
1: It's pretty damn hard, isn't it? Yeah. So, it would seem first like of that, all, that. one of the things I I coach is that even if you're physically dispersed. So even if you're the one person working from home that day, mm-hmm. you stand up. Okay. You respect the team. Okay. And that's really what that is about is about respecting the team. Um and you can still have your stand up, it's just harder. You know, again, if you're geographically dispersed, then you're going to have to look to technology to be able to communicate things like your Kanban board or user stories or whatever the team is working on Mm -hmm. at that moment Mm -hmm. or discussing or reviewing as part of your Mm stand-up. Because remember, a lot of agile teams use Kanban boards to do their stand-ups. And I'll tell you right now, I have a strong preference for that just because I found them to be much more effective stand-ups when right. you have a Kanban board. Um, but just working together in general, the teams have to be more creative, and that's where we have to use things like pictures of your coworkers or webcams or things like that. So you can still have that connection. Okay. With yeah. your team members.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and you had mentioned the Kanban board, um and again, you know, if you're not there to put your post-it note on the, the Kanban board or see what other people have posted, how do I how do I keep up with my colleagues on the things that I'm doing and on the things that they're doing?
1: Most teams will develop a couple of working agreements. There's two that are the most common. Mm-hmm. Um. basically because they tend to be really effective mm-hmm. in these situations. And one is that everybody agrees that they will have the Agile tool up to date prior to stand-up. Okay. The other thing is for those who don't have access to the Agile tool, which often happens with geographically dispersed teams, then the Scrum Master, there's more onus on the Scrum Master to put their updates into
0: the system. Okay. Well, you talked earlier about um, nonverbal cues and mentioned that there was so much more to human interaction and communications than words on a page or even spoken over a phone. Did you or do you find that there are more misunderstandings or miscommunications as a result of the absence of those nonverbal cues, which are also sometimes known as body language.
1: Absolutely, without a doubt. And that's one of the things that geographically dispersed teams have to be aware of. And this is where um, you see really successful agile organizations Mm -hmm. have agile coaches, this is where the team needs to coach. Okay. Cause that coach is that ne- neutral third party who is trained to see these things. They're trained to see misalignment. Mm-hmm. And they can really help a team see where they're misaligned. We, you mm-hmm. know, sometimes we call it talking past each other. Yes. Um, <laughs> and there's those miscues and miscommunications and also give the team, um, tools to be able to deal with that and minimize them. But that's one of the things that we have to account for when we have geographically dispersed teams. Whether they're agile or not is the cost of these miscommunications. And sometimes they're very real costs. Luckily, we're not in the military. Mm -hmm. This is one of those things, that, by the way, that the military calculates. The U.S. Mm -hmm. military. Most militaries calculate them. It actually started with the Israeli military. Um, And they're really, really good at it. Um, Because in that world, miscommunications literally result in death. Yes. And what results is what we call in the United States friendly fire, Mm -hmm. which is just a really weird way of... In this in, in sort of like almost trying to make it sound nice. Yeah. a way of saying that a U.S. military person accidentally killed one or more other U.S. military people.
2: Right. Yep.
1: And when we look at modern warfare, about half of military deaths are friendly fire. The no. United States and other countries is the same. And I bring this up just to sort of give people... The extreme side of the cost of miscommunication. Okay. It's really high. It can be really, really high. In some companies, and we've talked about them a little bit here Mm -hmm. when we talk about governance, it's security breaches, it's regulatory problems,
2: Mm -hmm. right?
1: Right. (laughs) Those are pretty high from an organizational standpoint. Luckily, it's not life or death. So we can kind of take that out of it. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't take miscommunication and the cost of miscommunication very, very seriously.
0: Yes. Yeah, I I had no idea about the military. And as you say, um, the friendly fire deaths are, uh, I guess to me, seem all the more tragic because of the source of the the fire.
1: They are, and... So you have the people who unfortunately lost their lives or were injured, and then you have the people who caused it. Right. And both suffer greatly.
2: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And
1: so then you think about it, you take that into our far less uh, costly work world, right? Mm-hmm. And we think about what happens in miscommunications. Both sides suffer. Yes. And that's one of the things we don't always take it into account either in miscommunications is that both sides suffer. We tend to blame one side.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh.
1: And the reality is communication is a two-way street.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yes.
1: And a person needs to be receptive as much as the other person needs to be clear.
0: That's – that is so well said.
1: And – so we need to stop thinking about miscommunication as a blame game mm-hmm. and more an issue of, um, uh, pro- there's probably some sort of process issue going on mm-hmm. and everyone is detrimentally impacted.
0: Boy, that's, uh, you just said, um, something that's so incredibly important. I, I hope those of you who are listening, uh, um, took note because I I know I certainly did. Okay, so let's shift gears about one of the biggest criticism of work from home arrangements is the potential or outright abuse of the company's time by those who are not physically at work. And people will remember that Yahoo ended all of the work from home arrangements and there was a huge outcry. So is there... A way to make sure that people who work from home are actually working.
1: Yeah, and the, and it's and it's really easy. And, and this is one of the things that I find is um, kind of fascinating, because the truth is, the people who struggle with managing people who work from home are almost always people who don't know how to manage knowledge workers. Okay. There are people who have this command and control, micromanagement, I want to know what you're doing every five minutes, or I don't trust you, management style. Okay. And I'm glad you brought up Yahoo, because Yahoo is in the worst shape it's been in in a decade. Oh. And some of what, why it's on the auction block right now, I mean, they're for sale. Mm-hmm. Is because of this change. Because knowledge workers, remember, knowledge workers are motivated by purpose, autonomy, and mastery. Right. When we take away work from home and alternate work arrangements, we take away autonomy. Yes. What happens, and we have, with all the bluster that's going on with the presidential campaign, let's look at reality. Reality is, we have the best economy We've had this century, okay, right now in early 2016. (laughs) So I'll timestamp that. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, we have places like Minneapolis we've talked about before that has over has about 200 thousand tech jobs open. Okay, you strip away from knowledge workers any one of those three things, but especially autonomy. And they leave your company, and that's what happened to Yahoo. Mm-hmm. And anytime these things happen, and this is incredibly scientifically documented by multiple uh, 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 disciplines, economists and sociologists and business scientists have all proven this over and over again, the first people to leave are your highest talent.
0: Always, absolutely. The
1: people you can least afford. Mm-hmm. And they left Yahoo and Ha! Huh. And everybody in the tech world just went, Told you so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you just you can't do stuff like that. You do not mess with purpose, autonomy, and mastery. Um and they had purpose and autonomy mm-hmm. uh disrupted. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, but let's, let me kind of flip that on its side a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. because there are plenty of, of trust, or maybe better said, lack of trust issues about that. So, um, you had mentioned, you know, the, the person who doesn't understand how to manage the knowledge worker, and that makes perfect sense. Um, is there though, under Agile, is there a, protocol that helps mitigate this or am I being too controlling?
1: Absolutely there is because we have the daily stand-up. We have the team itself. Okay. And I've worked with teams at various levels including executive teams by the way. when it, We haven't talked about this in a while but when an, when an organization truly goes agile, the mm-hmm. C-suite becomes an agile team. Okay. With all the same Ceremonies and behaviors that you would expect from an agile team. Okay. And what happens is one of our favorite things there's no ha- hiding in agile. That's right. You can't hide poor performance. You can't hide ignorance. You can't hide defects. You can't hide bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Right? There's no hiding in agile. It will come to the surface usually within the same sprint.
2: Okay. It's so that
1: sprint and the subsequent sprint, and this happens with a certain degree because most people who the, there's a tiny population in the workplace. This is really fascinating. So back to our business scientists, how many people are really kind of lazy and just try not try to get away with stuff, I'm on a paycheck without ever doing anything? It's actually only about two percent of the population. Wow. But we have created this whole management zeitgeist Mm -hmm. to this 2%. That 2%, by the way, usually knows who they are. They're not going to go to an agile company because they know they're going to be found out. Right. And they're going to be found out fairly quickly. And what will happen is the team will go to their coach and say, we think we want so-and-so removed. Mm -hmm. The coach will come in. And observe, because you want that third party objective validation. Mm -hmm. That this is what's happening. Not that there is a personality conflict. Not, you know, the coach wants to make sure that, you know, the team isn't supporting this person or something, you know. You want to make sure that this person really is underperforming. Mm Yeah. Then the coach will go to the hiring, you know, that person's uh, manager and our HR and say, we need to make a move. And the coach will usually say, I think we need to move this person to a new team, or mm-hmm. I think we need to exit this person.
0: Yeah, I, I like the no hiding in Agile. Um, it's it's just such a way to kind of cut through all the nonsense and get right to the
1: point. Um, <laughs> it is one of our favorite sayings yeah um, and every Agilist will tell you it's absolutely true. um everything comes to the surface.
0: so getting though back to uh my old fashioned way of thinking um about <laughs> about employees and working from home um it's it's probably fair to say that some people are better suited for an arrangement like this than others, aren't there?
1: Yeah, always. I mean, that's true of any, uh, methodology or any organization or, you know, there are certain organizations that, you know, some of us are just not a good fit for. Right. Mm-hmm. That's, right. that's fine. Um, you know, someone who, for instance, doesn't have a knowledge worker, uh, mentality and ethic isn't likely to be a good fit in an agile organization, right? Because right away, they're not going to care the why, uh-huh. so they're not going to invest creativity into the design. They don't. They may or may not care about autonomy, and if they don't care about mastery, do you really want to invest in that person? No. If they're not investing in themselves, yep. Do you want to invest in them? Probably Absolutely not. not right? Um. In so you know th- those people exist. Um, people who pursue a knowledge worker role, um, that's going to be a really small population. Because mm-hmm. remember, knowledge being a knowledge worker is self-selection.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: Especially in the United States, more so in the United States, because it is a very expensive endeavor for most of us. Very few of us can just walk in and go to college for free. Well, that's right. <laughs> and, I
0: didn't
1: <laughs> Right. And most of us, you know, are gonna spend somewhere between twenty five thousand and over a hundred thousand dollars in our just undergraduate education.
2: That's right. That's right.
1: People are not going to make that level of an investment plus the four years or you know, the average is almost five years in the United States, but still <laughs> that's a long yeah. time. Um, to go into a field that doesn't mirror or reflect their own personal value.
2: thats right, that's what it says. It's
1: very unlikely, and we can say, you know, economist—you know, the old school economists will say, "Well, they go into it for the money." Yeah, we actually know that's not true.
2: Yeah,
1: the economists who studied it have said that once people believe they're getting paid their fair. M- not just believe; they know they're getting paid their fair market. Mm-hmm. Money goes out the window as a motivator.
0: Right, that's it right. It
1: then becomes purpose, autonomy, and mastery—the
0: big three. So, yeah, getting kind of though back to uh, if if we were going to write this down um, as as a directions for for hiring managers, what would you say are the traits that you should look for that will make the remote person, or make a person, be a good candidate for working remotely.
1: Really, it's more about um, a certain degree of discipline mm-hmm. and a sense of accountability. Okay. And you want that sense of accountability for anybody who works on an agile team, or any team, even a non-agile team, right? Right. Um, So they're not going to make commitments and then not follow through on them. Uh Mm-hmm. You want someone who really feels that accountability and responsibility and takes it seriously. Yes. Um, Some people, and I think this is a huge mistake, so I'm going to say the other side, they look for people who, you know, will even when they're at home work the traditional office hours. Mm-hmm. What again, why do you, what do you care? If it's supposed to be done by Friday, why do you care if they did it Thursday at three in the afternoon or two o'clock in the morning on Friday?
0: It's a good it, question. It
1: shouldn't matter. It yeah. really, really shouldn't. And the vast majority of knowledge workers are salaried anyways. So right. Really shouldn't matter, and especially if you're following business science, and you're not using outsourced people, and your knowledge worker roles or contractors, then they're definitely salaried, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So you really shouldn't care. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You, you you might care if you think the person's not getting enough sleep.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: But that's a different conversation. Yeah. Then you know. If they sent you emails at two o'clock in the morning, you know, well, it right. really shouldn't, shouldn't matter. So really look for that person who has a sense of accountability and responsibility and really cares about the impact that they have on their team members on the organization.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The only thing, motivation I can think of is that, you know, we should all be suffering equally at three o'clock in the afternoon. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> how dare you be suffering at two a.m.? So.
1: You know, but, you know it's, but if you're doing, you know, independent work,
0: uh-huh.
1: it doesn't matter, right? Oh, yeah. Or, you know, and there's been times in my career where I would get up, I remember this one job I had, I would get up at uh, six o'clock in the morning uh-huh. and I would take an hour or so of calls with Eastern Europe oh, and yeah. I would make breakfast, walk the dog, shower, pick up calls with. Um Europe and then start moving into the United States mm-hmm. you know, then I would stop working like around one right because I had calls with Asia at <laughs> ten o'clock <laughs> at night until midnight. Yep. night yeah you know and and so it was a very odd work day, but right. I got everything done, including everything I needed for the household and my family
2: mm-hmm yeah. You know,
1: the dog loved it. Because well, sure. from home full time, you know?
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and and no one I worked with gave a crap if at 1 o'clock in the afternoon I took off and did grocery shopping and picked up the dry cleaning and did all this other stuff because we weren't working together on anything anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so it yeah. did not matter, right?
2: Absolutely. Um
1: and it wasn't that big of a deal for me, who tends to be a night person anyways, mm-hmm. to get out a phone call at ten o'clock at night with Japan.
0: Right. Right. Thank so you. as you know, we talked about employee qualities. Let's look at leadership qualities. What what are or what kind of leadership qualities are needed to, to manage a geographically diverse team? I think you may have just answered a lot <laughs> of that.
1: Yes, because I was a leader at that in that role, mm-hmm. and my people were scattered across the globe, right? And so it was really about flexibility. But a lot of what I find is people who are successful in leadership roles of knowledge workers in general,
2: mm-hmm.
1: whether or not they're geographically dispersed, model the behaviors that they want to see from their people. Okay. So yes. they're really going to make sure that they have a nice sense, they have a, a defined sense of purpose for their work. They're working autonomously and promoting an autonomous work. They're mastering and they're transparent about what they're working in on and mastering. Mm-hmm. As well as fostering in that for others. And they're very creative. How do I have one-on-ones with someone who's in Japan? Yeah. Yeah. Right, for example, so looking for ways don't make Japan always accommodate your. US schedule. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you should accommodate, accommodate their schedule. Exactly. Um, et cetera. And mm-hmm. uh, you know it's funny how what a big impact that had, my willingness to have kind of a weird work schedule. Mm-hmm. Um it had such a huge impact on the people I was leading because no one in the United States had ever done that before. And shown them that respect. Huh. And said you're important too. So I'm not gonna make you stay up in to the middle of the night to talk to me. I'm I'm just gonna call you before I go to bed.
0: That's that's cool. That's a very cool way to approach it.
1: But it's also That's servant leadership. Yes. Right? Right. And there were many times when they would accommodate my schedule. Mm -hmm. And that's really what you want to model. You want to think about those things as a leader. Um, You know, what can I do to make that person who's halfway across the planet feel important, feel valued? Mm Feel part of this team Mm -hmm. and not feel like they're the other, you know?
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's, um, I know that I used to have a, the the man I reported to was in Hong Kong and we would do exactly as you described. He would call me at nine o'clock at night, his time some days. And some days I'd call at nine o'clock at night, my time. And it was never, never an issue.
1: Right, but didn't it make you feel valued because you weren't always expected as the subordinate to accommodate his schedule?
0: It, absolutely, it was. He I thought was very generous. was to say, yep.
1: "You're important enough to me. I'm going to stay up late and call you."
0: Yeah, I thought it was extremely generous of him, and um, it's been a number of years, and I still remember it very well. So, with the time we've got left, you know, I kind of brought my own. Um, Cynical baggage along with me on our conversation today and asked you a lot about the potential downsides of the geographically diverse team. So I thought we could end on a on a positive note. The geographically diverse team, when properly managed, makes it possible to access the best talent anywhere, not just the best local talent. Are there other advantages?
1: There can be some economic advantages, but to be honest, what we keep finding over and over again is they're they're nominal mm-hmm.
2: um,
1: because of the increased overhead and the opportunity costs because mm-hmm. of miscommunications, right, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, really, what it is is about expanding your global footprint if you're a significant company,
2: mm-hmm.
1: having You know, American. there's a reason why American Express has people working in every country in the world, right? Right. Because that tells those people you're important, and it tells people who are traveling there that you have some security. Yes. Because American Express is there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) If something happens, I need cash. I know where to go, right? Things like that. Right. Um, So there are significant business advantages. To having geographically dispersed teams.
2: Okay.
1: Um, when we come to things like product development, you know, really the focus of agile teams, it's really co-locate and only go geographically di- dispersed if you absolutely, absolutely have to. hmm And if you do, then please use some of the the tips and tricks that we've talked about today because it'll make it a lot easier on those folks. And I especially don't think we should ever put ourselves in a position where we have somebody who's really invested in our company, who's really talented, who's delivered value, and for whatever reason, say they have to move to Texas, and we Mm -hmm. let them go. Yeah. No. In the modern world, we should figure that out. Yeah. We can webcam that person. There's, There's things that we can do. Um... To show, to continue to value that individual. And so that's where I'm not like, you know, a purist about co-located teams because I just don't think if we're too much of a purist, if we're too dogmatic about it, Mm -hmm. then we lose respect for people. Yes. And geographically dispersed teams should start with respect for people. And everything we do to support geographically dispersed teams should be about respecting the people. Yes. And then you'll be fine. Then you'll actually get good teams.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's so well said. And, uh, you know, I guess there's there are no perfect arrangements for anyone or any organization. One size never fits all. And as we've heard, you know, not everybody is cut out. To be a member of a geographically diverse team, but clearly there are advantages and reasons to consider this kind of an arrangement, and probably more, at least, than I would have imagined before this conversation today with Ren. Not the least of these is entree to the best talent available anywhere, but also considering what some of the downside is in terms of lack of communication and added cost. Now, to read more about this topic and a whole lot more, be sure to visit Wren's webpage, which is www.renmelberg.com. And as always, remember to come back next week for another edition of The Guardian Podcast with Ren Melberg.